So ultimately, what my dissertation argues is that Cuban artists and writers claim safety in the very act of reconfiguring what it means. So normally, when we think about safety, we think of a material state that endures in time. And this is a particularly heightened commitment in when we think about art objects, right? Like the do not touch of it all, the behind the glass vitrine of it all. So art is a really interesting place to explore these concepts as well. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Dr. Luke Urbane, a new member of the Cornell community, joins us for a wide-ranging conversation about language learning, Cuban politics, art, and the concept of safety. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Luke Urbane joins us in the studio today. Dr. Urbane is the new program manager for the Latin American and Caribbean Studies program at Cornell and recently completed their dissertation on safety and uncertainty in contemporary Cuban culture. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Luke. Thank you so much for having me, Angelica and Sam. I've been listening to the podcast over the past couple of weeks. I've been here for about Delightful. a month, and it's mm-hmm. actually really cool how intentional y'all have been about making this not only professors and people on campus, but also broadening it out to right? other folks in the community. Well, wonderful. It's really great. And it's fun for me to like learn about these different nodes of intensity oh, yeah. where people are thinking about languages. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Awesome. Uh, That's we what love we to like hear to hear, it. yeah. Well, let's kick things off uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of your work, what you're doing here at Cornell. Um, what is your background and your path with languages in your life? Sure. So I grew up in Milwaukee in an English language household. Mm-hmm. So English was my first language in, in a suburb of Milwaukee, I should say. And my path with language is really attributed to a public school system mm-hmm. with um a lot, a pretty robust language program. I should say Spanish language program. Of course, there's like sure. a pretty limited number of options that they're offering. But yeah, I, from very early on when I was in high school, I would say I always appreciated this pseudo magical quality of the language classroom. <laughs> like where else is saying or learning how to say, how are you doing? Yeah. Like part of the learning objectives. Yeah. It's like, language classrooms and therapy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in any case, like it was a, it was an environment that I felt really comfortable in, Mm -hmm. in high school. And then by the time I got to college, it was very easy for me to get a Spanish major Mm -hmm. because of retro credits and things like that. And so even though I finished the major, I think probably relatively early on when I was an undergrad, I continued to take more advanced topics level classes to learn a little bit more about different cultural Mm -hmm. areas where the language is spoken. And then after that, well, I'm not sure if this is important to say. It might come in later or not, but I majored in Spanish and art history and Mm. chemistry. So I was a triple major. Oh, look at that, man. So part of that is like that millennial era mentality of Uh, needing to do many things. And then part (laughs) of that is the post-recession mentality Mm. of... I need to have something Uh Uh (laughs) STEM-based. But after after my undergrad degree, I lived in Minneapolis for a couple years and 
During the day, I cobbled together different arts administration gigs, mm -hmm. and during the night, I waited tables to mm -hmm. supplement the money that I wasn't earning from the day job. <laughs> ah, yes. But throughout that period, I got a different perspective on the language classroom as uh, ESL or English as a second or third or fourth language mm -hmm. uh, teaching in my community in Northeast Minneapolis, which had and continues to have a substantial Somali and also Ecuadorian population. Mm -hmm. So. Shout out Literacy Network in, in Minneapolis. Nice. Um, I remember like getting off the bus in the pitch black and going to an abandoned basement of a community center. <laughs> it was a really well utilized uh, service. Mm -hmm. I remember like it, it was packed. Yeah. I remember at one point we were teaching, I was teaching in the antechamber to a woman's bathroom in <laughs> right a basement in Northeast Minneapolis. Wow. And yet it was the most, affir like probably the most affirming classroom environment I've ever been in. Oh, wow. And I have like nothing but the warmest memories. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So I had this passion for language teaching that I sort of found there. I had this background in art history and also... Spanish, and I decided to go to grad school, as mm -hmm. one does. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I went to UW-Madison, which is where I did my undergrad. So it was sort of a homecoming. Nice. And um, yeah, I, I taught Spanish for several years and worked on my dissertation. Fantastic. Well, speaking of that dissertation, congratulations, first of all, on recently completing that. Woohoo! Yay. Thank um, you. <laughs> tell us more about this dissertation and your work in general. What were you researching? What was your topic? Yeah, so to take a step back before I get into the cultural and area studies component of my dissertation, I'd always had this sort of inherent curiosity around this concept of safety. Mm -hmm. So I grew up listening to political leaders say, a variation of the following sentence, your safety is my number one priority. Mm. Uh -huh. And that sentence, it feels so comforting. It feels very reassuring. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yet, if you pay attention to when that sentence is brought out into public discourse, it happens usually at the very precise moment before an unlawful military incursion into a sovereign territory is happening. Hmm. No. So it's this, <laughs> it's this double-sided concept that is so, that was, it's always been so fascinating for me where it's something that we all crave. It's something that we yeah. all want and that it's good to want and pursue. But at the same time, it has this other side where it's um, coercive and it sort of just pushes precarity out of arm's reach, out of, out of eyesight, let's mm -hmm. say. So I was really interested in the double-sided nature of that, of that concept, of that structure of feeling, of safety. And I was in a Spanish department, so I was thinking about different ways I could approach that concept. And eventually I settled on thinking the concept of safety and uncertainty from Cuba. And when I say Cuba, uh, it's an idea. It's mm, mm, um, okay. what, because it's helpful to put a time range on things. It's during the revolutionary period, so over roughly the past 60 years. And when I say Cuba, it's artists and writers on the island, but also off the island. So Cuba gotcha. has a population of around a little bit more than 11 million, but over the past 60 years, over a million people have left mm. at, at different moments. And with different levels of privilege and across different experiences and for many different reasons as well. Sure. So I was interested in thinking, what does safety mean for 
uh, Cuban artists and writers. I think one other meta context that I'd just like to mention real quickly is, right, I've, I mentioned the sort of intrinsic ambiguity in the concept of safety, mm-hmm. but then also to situate it broadly in a present moment, we're also at this moment where it feels like older forms of understanding and seeking safety are increasingly inoperable. Mm, so yeah. thinking about the nation as, a, as something that guarantees your safety sure. uh-huh. is arguably something that's always been under stress, but it's certainly something that's been under stress during the Cuban Revolution, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that has promised sort of this utopian society and at times left people waiting 15 hours a week to acquire basic goods. Mm. So thinking through what safety means in that context, and then also doing that with literature and art. So thinking about how um, how an artist approaches their work as saying something about this broad, broader concept of safety. So ultimately what my dissertation argues is that Cuban artists and writers claim safety in the very act of reconfiguring what it means. Ooh. So to give you just one example of how this works, I have a chapter on a Cuban-born United States-based artist. He's actually really well-known. His name is Felix Gonzalez Torres, and he he passed in, in 1996, I want to say. And he essentially wrote a series of instructions for how his work could change after it was ostensibly finished. So mm-hmm. normally when we think about safety, we think of a material state that endures in time. And this mm-hmm. is a particularly heightened commitment in when we think about art objects, right? Like the do not touch of it all, the behind the (laughs) glass vitrine of it all. So art is a really interesting place to explore these concepts as well. And essentially what happens is his work changes because people can interact with it, but it also changes well after the artist has finished his work. So um, it's really less this commitment to sameness and perpetuity than a sort of openness uh, to this almost an ethic of being with change. Hmm. So it's really reconfiguring what safety means, but yeah. still finding a way to claim that. Wow. Beautiful. Awesome. Um, so I, I, I want to ask a little more um, because I'm fascinated. And I know you also um, published an article recently that was focused on Felix Gonzalez Torres. And, and um, you mentioned there's a whole chapter on his work in your dissertation. Um, does this article expand on that anymore? Um, is there, what is it about his work in particular that uh, drew you to him and uh, to include him as part of your thesis? Wow, there's so there's so much to say there. So yeah. <laughs> I would say, you know, like, for one, I find the work to be incredibly striking. So Felix mm-hmm. Gonzalez Torres is one of these artists who appropriated genres of American art, like this very austere minimalism mm-hmm. and this very inaccessible conceptual art that had come before in the 60s and 70s. And he inflected the sort of vernacular of capital A art with mm. a social text. Mm-hmm. So very often... You know, for instance, he has what are called candy piles, which are these large piles of individually wrapped hard candies Mm -hmm. that the audience can come up and take. And very often these are likened to a human body, right? Gonzalez Torres is making his work in the age of AIDS, Mm -hmm. which is, right, a time when 
when many people are rethinking notions of corporeal vulnerability mm-hmm. and this idea that these candy piles are are disappearing in real time yeah. as a sort of um, abstracted mirror for the AIDS epidemic, which was also something that, right, this is also a time of, of culture wars where direct representation was sure. really being very much more policed. Yeah. So I was interested in that. And then also as a queer person, I was interested in, in one of the sort of mini assignments I had was, is there a way to talk about this work without centering it on queer of color death? Mm. Uh huh. So that's where yeah. the, the, that's where this whole approach of thinking with an ethic of being with change, as opposed to the foreclosure of the self, mm-hmm. became uh-huh. really important to me. And then another thing that's worth mentioning is, you know, I'm I'm writing a dissertation on Cuba, and I think it's really important to include artists and writers from the Cuban diaspora because they their work matters and it needs to be included and we need to expand our analytical frames for understanding what sure. right like cubania or cubanidad means yeah wow i guess we all just have to read your dissertation to find out way more or at least start with that with that recent article this is this is all really fascinating material that you are working on so are you able to bring any of your research or at least like the focus area into your new role um, in the Latin American and Caribbean studies program? Yes. So um, formerly the Latin American studies program. So LASP, sometimes it was called LASP, has actually been reconfigured as the Latin American and now Caribbean studies program, right? The Caribbean part is just giving acknowledgement to the fact that the Caribbean is a geographically distinct region, and also, of course, culturally a distinct region. So, right, my dissertation was on Cuba, but I actually consider myself a Caribbeanist as well. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely something that I'm bringing to this this new position, and um, I'm actually really excited because in addition to the Latin American Studies minor for undergrads that was already existing, we'll soon be launching a Caribbean Studies minor for undergrads as oh, well. Nice. Cool. So... That's maybe one place where my research touches the work that I, I'm just starting to do mm-hmm. at LAX. But it's going to be a really exciting minor um, because the Caribbean is not one linguistic region, but um, oh, maybe sure. one of the more, more diverse yeah. linguis- linguistic regions. Uh, there isn't the same language requirements. So it'll be something that even if you don't speak Spanish, it's still a minor that you can participate in, sure. which is really exciting. And of course... As someone who studied languages, my, my hope is that, of course, you learn Spanish, you learn French, you sure. learn all of the languages, but um, that's not a requirement for the major. Yeah, got it. So are there any other things, other events that are part of what you have in mind or what the program in general is planning? Anything else that might be of interest to our listeners? Oh my gosh, there's so much. <laughs> Hooray. Let's hear it. Yeah, so I would say that the core, or not the core, but a key thing that we do is our weekly seminar series. So that happens during the academic year. Usually it's Tuesday at 1220 in Uris Hall, G08. I'm still learning. This is how you say it, Uris? Yes. Okay, it's mm-hmm. in Uris Hall, G08. <laughs> and then in addition to in addition to the the seminar series, in addition to the minor I mentioned, there's a graduate minor as well. We'll be launching our new Caribbean Studies minor. We have a really robust internship program in mm-hmm. Ecuador that I'm sure you know of, Angelica. I, 
there's so many we have like seven or eight different partners uh, and students can work on everything from citizen science to exploring indigenous models of governance. Yeah. It's a really robustly conceived program. I feel really lucky to be walking into a program that has such a, a shining uh, internship program right now. Mm-hmm. And then I would also say, you know, the I think what Lex does is incredibly dynamic and it is faculty-led as well. So there are always new initiatives popping up. One that's worth mentioning right now is... A faculty member in the Romance Studies Department, Ida Trocones, is uh, working on bringing an archive of testimonies from Venezuelan refugees over the past Hmm. five or so years to be housed in Cornell's libraries. Uh, As part of that initiative, they're being transcribed right now. Hopefully it'll be launched next year. So it's a really exciting initiative. They're really important testimonies. And it just is one example of the very diverse and very dynamic sure. programming and initiatives and contributions that LAX makes to Cornell, but also hopefully they'll be available more broadly as well. Yeah, nice. Great. Are there any other projects you currently have in the works that you'd like to share with us? Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, there's so many things. Um, well, on the personal front, um, I'm, I'm organizing a panel for the upcoming LASA Congress on theorizing affect studies for Latin America and the Caribbean in particular. I'm also working on an article on the effective time of the wait line in post-special period or post-90s Cuba. Um, in In terms of personal projects, I'm always looking for recipe recommendations. I love a good weekend baking adventure. I think in my future, I'm seeing an ice cream cake. Oh, all right. That's uh, that's something I've never <laughs> I never thought about attempting on my own. I'm definitely interested in how that goes for you. Well, yeah, we were talking before about different kitchen instruments that we have. Right. I have an ice cream maker that I got off of Craigslist 10 years ago for nice. $15. Okay. So I'll be breaking that out periodically over these coming weekends to get me Pretty through good. the winter doldrums. Yes. I like it. Okay. Well, you know where to find us here at the Langley <laughs> Yeah, if you, if you need uh, taste testers, yeah. we would be... <laughs> Happy to serve in that capacity. Shameless. I will keep that in mind. We're right across the street. Absolutely. That is awesome. (laughs) So, Luke, as a teacher of Romance languages, what is your favorite tip for language teachers to make language learning engaging and relevant for students? Just one tip? (laughs) You can give us two. (laughs) Well, okay, maybe this is a little bit niche, um, but as a non-binary person who didn't always have people respond or engage in meaningful conversations around pronouns, Mm -hmm. I would say bring that in from the first day of class. Mm -hmm. What I've done is, right, because you also don't want to put a student on the spot. Of course. So what I've done in the past is I'll send like a Google slide spreadsheet to the entire class. Everyone has a page and you put a few facts about yourself on it. You put Mm -hmm. a picture if you want. And there's a link as part of that to a video that will explain how pronouns are used in the language that we're studying. So that is a really, I think, that's a way that I would have wanted to learn Mm, about this as a student. Um, It takes a little bit of pressure off. And then also just make make it clear to students that, like, you can answer today one way and answer a different way Mm. in the future. And I think, right, hopefully that has an impact for non-binary and queer students, but it also helps, I think, to set the tone for the rest of the class. Absolutely, yeah. That's a pretty niche one. 
Well, and I, I was going to say, I'll argue that it, it's not niche, uh, or, or if it is niche, it it's something that we should be, be yeah, you exactly. know, as, as educators working to make mainstream, at least, yep. you know, in the classroom and, and beyond. That's how I feel about that, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and then I think the other thing is just, like, don't pander to students. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like that is something that maybe it's an easy trap to fall into as a teacher because there is an inherent hierarchy there. Mm. Um, but just respecting where students are coming from and also encouraging them to bring critical thinking skills and their own experiences into the class. Awesome. I love those. Thank you. Yeah. Excellent tips. Um, so where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and uh, the Latin American and Caribbean Studies program at Cornell? Sure. Well, for anything LAX-related, uh, it's lax at cornell.edu. So that's L-A-C-S at cornell.edu. And you can also just do a search. We come up pretty sure. easily. We're in the Yanaudi Center. We're in Uris Hall. I mean, if you're if you're on campus and you just want to pop in, I might be in a meeting, but like, please, by all means, come. <laughs> come yeah. say hi. I'm in 190C Uris Hall. Uh, so that's lax. And then if you want to email me personally, it's ltu2 at cornell.edu. So... Yeah, if you have any questions about anything lax related, let me know. I'd be thrilled to talk with you. And again, I'm new to campus, so it's like really exciting for me to meet new people. Yeah. There you go, people. If you are here, come say hello to Luke. And then stop by the LRC too and say hi to us as well, please. Of course. <laughs> Especially in the in the winter. Please. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> come visit. And if you come bearing ice cream cake, we will right. like you even more. Mm -hmm. Just We're just saying that as a general yes, you yes. Know, call yep. out to, yep. to whoever might be listening. <laughs> uh, Noted. <laughs> so, Luke, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language that you speak, that you love, that you are learning, that you may plan on learning in the future that doesn't exist in English, but you wish it did. And go. Okay, so... My word is, it's a Spanish word. It's a Cuban Spanish word. Mm -hmm. It's colero. It's C-O-L-E-R-O. And this is a word that describes someone who waits in line as kind of like a job. So <laughs> since the economic crisis of the 90s in Cuba, there's been um, varying degrees of waiting that has needed to happen for material goods. Sure. And at huh. times, I think I mentioned this earlier, at times it's been as like the average Cuban has spent like 15 hours a week waiting for a mm -hmm. ration of food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's happened is there, there's this, I, I guess, like a profession called, I mean, <laughs> a, a colero is an mm -hmm. often stigmatized and mm -hmm. racially stigmatized uh, um, okay. term for a person who um, waits in line professionally. And sometimes they'll get to the front of the line and sell their place. And sometimes they will... Um, get to the front of line and buy as many goods and then sell those on the on the secondary market. But it's a term, I don't know if I wish it existed in English necessarily, but it is mm -hmm. like this very particular term that speaks to uh, a specific reality that exists mm -hmm. in Cuba that sure. um, we don't, or I don't necessarily have uh, as, as clear of a, a correlation to, mm -hmm. right? So... I mean, maybe when we think of waiting in line here, I mean, I waited in line for coffee today. <laughs> um, we, we all remember the early days of the pandemic. But oh, yes. uh, like the 
the emotional and affective underpinnings mm-hmm. of waiting very incredibly uh, from one place to another. Interesting. Fascinating. Uh, well, this has been a treat. Uh, we could stay here and chat with you all afternoon. Um, but for now, I'm just going to say thank you so much for speaking of language with us, Luke. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Angelica. It's great to meet you. Well, Angelica, I've already met you. That's true. That's true. Sam, it's great to meet you. Angelica, it's great to see you again. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Next week, we will speak with Julie Evershed from the University of Michigan, recapping her talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on understanding copyright in the context of language teaching. Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. And follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.